Good morning, everybody. Randy Bolander from The Third Cup of Coffee here coming to you from my back porch where the rain has started to fall. Gray clouds over the top of the house. It looks like our second attempt at summer this year here in Kansas City is over. I have a teaching today from this Sunday at the bridge where I talked about the mess we are in. Our nation is really in a pickle. But I'm convinced that we've been in one for a while. And it is related far more to how we have treated the innocent than it is to how we are electing a president. I hope that it meets you and speaks to you today. Well, let's talk today a little bit about uh, what I'm calling the mess we are in. Um, all week long, I held on to the opening portion of this message because I was going to describe a little bit what was going on in the public eye for context. And the message, or I'm sorry, the situation was so fluid and evolutionary that every time I started to make a list of what was happening, by the time I got to the end of the list, the thing that was on the top of the list had slipped a third. And it was just almost like the situation nationally is very hard to describe and be accurate in the moment. Uh, the right doesn't trust the left. The left doesn't trust the right. Nobody trusts the media. And the right says that the left rigged the election. The left says it's impossible, has said it's impossible. But the left's been saying that the right did it for the past four years. And that was all by Wednesday. You know, it's just, it's a, a chaotic situation. Uh, that said, I would not call it sudden chaos. I would call it uh, chaos revealed. I think we have been coming to this point for a long time. And I think our national situation has a lot to do with things more than just the presidency. Um, that said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, which is what every conspiracy theorist says. I realize that, but I'm really not. I don't believe that there is a massive national cabal trying to destroy our nation. I believe there are probably a few. I don't believe that there are huge meetings with the titans of business and government wanting to take over our freedoms. I you know, probably believe there are a few. I don't believe that there are those who voted one way or the other that are more inherently violent than the other. I think lunacy spreads itself pretty evenly across the political divide. Because I think our problem is not about politics right now. I think our problem is about sin. And that said, we are a nation divided this morning. And without trying to be dramatic, I think the sin in our nation the division among our citizens and the justified reaction from the Lord could bring our nation to its knees. Our best hope is that we would go there willingly. Now, I am not given to overstatement. I don't like hype. I have a friend who prefaces every story he ever tells by telling me this is the best story ever. And uh, it drives me nuts. I always tell him that cannot possibly be true. Just tell the story. I will decide if it's the best story ever. I just don't like hype. That said, in my estimation, our topic today is the greatest crisis of our nation, and it's not COVID, even though that's sobering. It's not greed, although that's rampant. It's not healthcare. It's not the environment. It's not even the presidency. In my thinking, these are symptoms, not distinct afflictions, and we are putting bandages on abrasions of a body that has been racked with disease for almost 50 years. In fact, I believe that a great amount of chaos and unrest that we see in our nation this morning is the result of long-term 
systemic sin endorsed by our nation and paid for with our taxes. Now, when a person sins, there's always repercussions. I don't have to convince you of that. You know that when you've done wrong, when, when you make, you say make mistakes, but when you sin, there, there's a piper to pay. When a nation sins, there are also repercussions that roll down over the citizenship, and we are beginning to see that as we speak. This is what I think we are on the edge of having to pay for. The systemic, government-endorsed, and funded shedding of innocent blood. Now, I don't think I'm going to say anything this morning from a perspective that's going to surprise any of you. I think probably all of you know uh, where my heart is on this. Uh, but this is the first time that I, with you, have ever taken an entire teaching and talked about this. In fact, as I was getting ready to, to prepare for this, I realized that I have not set aside an entire teaching towards this. I've talked about it all the time, but I haven't talked about it for an entire teaching in 15 years. Uh, and I had to laugh because the last time I did it was at a pastor's conference and I spoke to 500 pastors who were expecting something very different. And when it was done, it felt like 495 of them were mad at me. I had actually one of them uh, uh, take me to task before I got off the stage about how improper it was that I spoke so boldly about this. Uh, it got to the point that I offered to, to reimburse his, uh, his um, conference fees. Uh, he didn't take me up on it, but maybe I should have. It would have been a little bit easier. For some of you, I'm going to challenge beliefs that you have. Maybe you see this issue differently than I do. And I would ask that if I've ever said anything that pricked your heart, that you would just consider my words this morning. If you disagree with me on this issue, I don't think you're evil. I think you're misguided. There's a difference. But misguided people find themselves in deep stuff. And I would like to help you find a way out. Just please hear me out. For others, you might agree with me, but you've never ever had language for this kind of thing. And I want to try and connect the dots scripturally for you. You're going to make scriptural sense of something that you felt deep within you and you've never been able to talk about. And I hope we can take your legitimate feelings and uh, bring them into clarity this morning. What I hope is that none of us walk away from this unrattled, because this crisis is such that it deserves an opportunity to shake our bones a little bit with its reality as we talk about the idea of the shedding of innocent blood. Before we dive in, let's just take a minute and pray, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Father, I thank you for those that have gathered really from across the nation this morning, uh, Father, from both coasts and, and up and down the middle. And I pray that you would bless them for their time, uh, that you would bless them for their open hearts. And I pray that you would rest on me, that I would be able to share your heart regarding the shedding of innocent blood in a way that reflects you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when you go to preacher school, uh, which I have to remind you I did go to, they teach you how to put a bow on it, all right? When you're done with the sermon, it's just, it's real tidy. You bring a message to a complete ending. Uh, and I'm going to do that, but in order to do that, I have to consider this week's message and next week's message one message, meaning there is no bow today, okay? We're going to leave it in some tension. We're going to talk about some hard things, and we're going to talk about how we address them next week. But I need some space to lay out my case, so when I explain where we're going to go and how we respond, some of you are willing to pay the price. Since 1973, there have been more than 60 million innocent lives taken tiny human flames snuffed out by abortion. 
60 million is more than the current population of Texas, Florida, and the state of New York. Not potential people, actual human beings. Now, I understand how in sedentary that all sounds, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. I don't say things for dramatic effect. It's because the issue really is like gasoline and matches. And some of you may have a very different idea on the issue of abortion, and you may come to that feeling because you're legitimately concerned about young women who find themselves pregnant without a way forward or with no way visible to them. And you say, yeah, it's a hard thing, but it's necessary. And, and maybe it's, it's even good that we have that option. I don't question your motives this morning, okay? I'm not here to question your motives, but I'm concerned for your heart because it, once it comes to conclusions like that, the things that follow are not good. If you will uh, look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, in verses 20 and 21, he lays out three woes. These woes are what you would call deep suffering or misfortune. Listen for them as I read through Isaiah 5, 21 to 22. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Just side commentary here. There is nothing as bitter as the loss of a child. There's nothing as unnatural as the loss of a child. Woe for those who call evil good and good evil. He goes on with another woe. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in drinking strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But when we call evil good, and when we think we're wise for doing it, and when we deprive the unborn to their right to life, we are guilty of all three of those woes or deep suffering or misfortune. Now, history has called our nation the American experiment. Because from the beginning, it was trying some things that really had not been tried before or had not been tried often. And one of the quirks of the founding of our nation was when we recognized that certain rights came from God. You may not know it word for word, but it's familiar enough that when I start to read it, it flows through your head like water. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So in our nation, the government gets its authority from the citizenry who consent to be governed. But men, women, and children get their rights to life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness from God himself. That was a new idea. And even though we did not recognize those rights as extensively as we should have in the beginning, the belief in the image of God on all men and women meant that as we grew in understanding as a nation, we extended those rights to more and more people who deserved them. We had the idea right at the beginning. We, we had the execution, terrible. But over years, we have gotten better at that. The experiment was flawed, but the experiment is working the bugs out over time to extend the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all people. Rights being handed down by God is an idea that has been crucial to the success that we have seen as a nation. It has made us a better nation, and it has made us a fairer nation. Thirteen years after our Declaration of Independence, the French took a run at it. 
and they borrowed parts of our writing to put in theirs. But one thing they changed was they said that the rights were granted by men, not God. They were victims of the Enlightenment, and they just couldn't imagine that God was still involved in the lives of humanity. The problem with that is rights that are given by men can be taken away by men. Rights by God are sustained on their own. It's no wonder that the American Revolution flourished while the French Revolution failed miserably. It was only a matter of time before the wrong man got in charge and took away the rights. I present that idea about rights being handed down from God to ask the obvious question, what is abortion if not depriving the innocent of his or her right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? By our own declaration of independence, we stand condemned and woe to the nation and to the people of that nation if they choose to call good what God has chosen to call evil. So we're in this kind of moment of dissonance where we hold rights or we withhold rights that we freely admit were given by God. When we withhold rights that we insist were given by God, chaos ensues. Now, we have lived in the patience of God on this issue, but what does it look like if the patience of God himself, at least on some issues, is coming to an end? There are seasons through history when the Lord, in his ultimate heart for reconciliation with man, has acted in patience and then has turned and acted in strength. If you look at Amos chapter 4, 11 and 12, he says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the fire, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He says this to his chosen people. What might he use as a tone of voice to an upstart nation on the other side of the globe when that nation disregards the rights that he extends to children in the, room, in the womb. Now, God's beef with the shedding of innocent blood goes back way into history. We've endorsed this as a nation since 1973, but it goes far, far further back than that. An individual is liable for the wrongs that they cause. But when those wrongs occur against an individual who is innocent, the guilt falls on an entirely bigger realm. Suddenly, all creation advocates for justice for that innocent life. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, 8 through 11, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God tells him that the blood of his brother killed unjustly in his innocence. This wasn't justifiable homicide. This wasn't an accident that the blood cried out and the cry of that blood made its way to the ears of God and God was coming to deal with it. If he was moved to act on the behalf of the cry of the blood of one man, 
what is the sound of the cry of 60 million children whose rights we said were given by God, but then we denied them as we tore them from the womb? What does the sound of those 60 million sound like when it reaches the ears of God? Genesis 9, 6. Now understand this is said in the context of a blessing, okay? He's blessing them, but he does a little bit of a side comment and he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Our biggest problem in America right now is not foreign actors on foreign soil. It's American actions that is soaking into American soil as the blood cries out from the ground on our communal guilt on this issue. For just a bit, quit thinking about this as somebody else's problem, okay? The blood cries out from the land we defend. If you've got an ounce of patriotism, when you see a flag in a parade, you have got to own both the glory and the gory about what it means to be an American. And under current law, there are things about being an American that carry with them a measure of blood guilt. Now, I actually try not to name names when I talk about things, because I think most of you are smart enough to kind of insert names into situations. But there is a name of an organization that I need to use. And in doing so, I might as well be crystal clear. Planned Parenthood is a racist cancer on our land, and rather than start chemotherapy, we have fed the beast. If you know anything about the founder of Planned Parenthood, from the beginning, she targeted Black populations, even working within their churches to keep the population from growing. These are direct quotes from the founder of Planned Parenthood. She called African Americans human weeds, which threatened the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Later, she said, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if ever it occurs to any of their more rebellious members. She manipulated the pastors of the black churches in order to gain inroads into that community. And it's so interesting to me that right now, while the left is considered to be the part that values minorities, they have embraced an idea of abortion that targets minorities from the beginning. And I don't want to give the right a pass on the issue of race either, because the right, the right hasn't gotten it any better. In light of our national sin, words like right and left are useless before the Lord. Like my friend Will Ford says, right wing, left wing, the whole bird is sick. We need God. In Houston, 10 years ago, in a largely Latino neighborhood, Planned Parenthood opened a location that they called Prevention Park. Should have been called Extermination Park. A site dedicated to the extinguishing of life. They spent $26 million to build a building seven stories tall that many called an abortion supercenter. If you've ever seen the building, it looks like a ziggurat. It looks like the Tower of Babel. I'm not saying that was the intention of the designers. I'm just saying the enemy knows only a couple of ways of how to do things. And because of how Planned Parenthood accounts for their funds, this was built in part by tax dollars. Now, if you ask them about this, they'll protest. And they'll say that, no, 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 no funding 
No federal funding goes to abortion. But the offices of Planned Parenthood who distribute numbers will tell you that abortion is about 25 to 30 percent of their business model when you look at it from a dollar standpoint of view. Nationally, they'll say it's only 3% of what they do, but the, re the way they reach that 3% number is they consider an abortion one instance of service. They consider handing out a brochure another instance of service. They consider answering a phone call another instance of service. And in light of calling all of those things an equal, maybe it is 3%, but when you look at it of where the money goes, it's about 30% of what they do. And even though they say that we don't pay for abortions with our tax dollars, by paying for other things they do, we support their doing abortion. It's a little bit like me telling you, I'm going to pay your water bill so you can pay your cable. Who's really paying for your cable? Planned Parenthood's Prevention Park, the abortion supercenter, was placed next to a major highway because the CEO of that location said they wanted four things. This is what they wanted in building that building there. Visibility, security, efficiency, and room to grow. If you're really interested in making abortion safe and rare, why do you plot for growth? Numbers 35 33 says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Some of you are thinking already, Randy, you're making a very personal issue into a sermon. This is between a man, or I'm sorry, it's between a woman and her doctor. No, no, no. This is between a woman and a man and their child, and their doctor, and the creator of heaven and earth. Now, this is not a new issue. It's been going on for years at some level. Psalm 106, 37 to 38 says, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they poured out innocent blood in the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. You can call it the idols of Canaan or the idols of convenience. We are sacrificing children in our nation and we're subsidizing it. And the earth cries out with the blood of these children. We've just become more effective at it. We've given our, given our locations visibility and security and efficiency and room to grow. Now, I may not have challenged anything that you think right now. And you may be saying, well, yeah, this is terrible. I've always thought it was terrible, Randy, but why is this my problem? In our highly individualized world, we have recused ourselves of the idea of national guilt. We have ditched the idea that because our nation does something, it rests on us. Yet we hold others responsible in a way that we will not accept. For example, how many of us have asked, how could the German church remain silent in the shadows of the death camps of World War II? Dachau existed for 12 years, housed, housed 30,000 at the main camp with a system of 100 smaller camps located 30 minutes from the center of Munich. There were 200,000 held there over time, 32,000 killed there. Where was the church? In World War II, there was a term in Germany, Kirchenkampf. 
and it meant the church struggle. The Nazis used it to describe how they were going to deal with the church on the issue of exterminating the Jews. And actually, in, in some time forward, I, I want Steve Hickey to teach on this. He's, his understanding of that era is, is much better than mine. He's done his doctorate and that sort of thing. But there were five steps that the Nazis used to address the Kirchenkampf or the church problem during World War II that kept the church quiet. First, it removed the church from the political arena, which effect effectively we have already surrendered. It brought churches under Nazi control. It removed religious symbols from the public eye. Now, when they got to this point, there was a group called the Confessing Church, or we might look at it and call the Prophetic Church or the True Church, that began to rise up and began to push back. But the Kirchenkampf continued, and they trumped up immorality charges against clergy and, anti, and presented anti-clergy propaganda. And finally, eventually, services and church functions were banned. All of that happened, and we still say, why didn't the Church of Germany do something? And yet we are crowded into silence out of fear of just losing a 501c3. The Church of Germany was, to some measure, responsible for what happened, and we are, at some measure, responsible. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of corporate guilt, because it's such a foreign thought to an individualized society. Deuteronomy 21, 1 and 2 says that if in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. In other words, they find a dead body. They're not quite sure who's responsible for this. They measure to see which city or village is closest. Why? To determine on whose watch did this happen. Who's responsible for this as a community? We are responsible for the sin on our land, and we're responsible for what happens on our watch. Deuteronomy 12, 8 and 9 says, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt will be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Throughout scripture, we see this character uh, referred to in a lot of places. You can do a word study of it, uh, but it's the idea of the avenger of blood. It is a family member who takes on the responsibility of justice when an innocent life is taken. Deuteronomy 19, 11, and 12 says, But if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in waiting for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he might die. And we see Jesus in the family setting as a kinsman redeemer, like Boaz, who took Ruth under his care and loved her and gave her a home. That's how we view Jesus. We love him as our kinsman redeemer, but the kinsman redeemer is also the avenger of blood. If you look at the end of the book in Revelation 6, we hear the blood of the martyrs crying out. Who are they crying for? Are they asking their fellow believers to pass legislation? No, they're crying for vengeance, and they're crying out to Jesus. Revelation 6.10 says, They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, 
holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The blood of these babies cries out from the ground, not to the tune of 200,000 that were held at Dachau, not to the tune of 6 million Jews killed during World War II, but to the tune of 60 million voices silenced by the violence in the womb with our endorsement, be it passive or active. What if God visits us in response to the sound of the blood crying out from the land? That's terrifying. You know, we have long seen a connection between the slave trade and the abortion industry. One in that it both initially targeted blacks. Both denied God-given rights to people with the image of God on their souls. And in both cases, some in the church were able to make peace with it and silence the cries in their head so it didn't bother them anymore. But others heard the voices and they could not stop until that cry was brought to a national attention. One of my favorite characters in uh, American church history is Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a revivalist in upstate New York. And during the days of slavery, he wrote, every Southern breeze is loaded down with the sound of lamentation, mourning, and woe. Two million degraded slaves in our own land stretch their hands, all shackled and bleeding, and sent forth to the church of God in agonizing cries for help. And shall the church, in her efforts to reclaim and save the world, deafen her ears to the voice of agony and despair, God forbid. The church cannot turn away from this question. God will push it to a decision. I believe that even through the chaos of the last few days, with the appointment of a Supreme Court justice at the last minute, with the upheaval around the election, that God is actually pushing to the forefront this idea of abortion. The issue of slavery from the moment our nation was founded was on a collision course with the idea of unalienable rights given from God. It took 150 years, but God pushed it to a decision. And a battle broke out. Now, make no mistake, those who lived it drew a direct connection between the Civil War and the shedding of the slaves' innocent blood. I've read this quote to you before, but if you've missed it, if you ever visit the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., as you're facing him sitting there in the chair, you look to the right, and there is the, the transcript of his second inaugural address, where he addresses this idea that perhaps the Civil War wasn't just a fight among states, but it might have been judgment. He said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may pass speedily away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all of the wealth piled up by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, then every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As it was said 3,000 years ago, still must it be said, and then he quotes Psalm 19.9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln understood that what he was facing in the way of a civil war was the result of centuries of slavery. If this happened in the 1800s, why could it not happen in 2020? And that maybe that civil war doesn't break out over abortion, but in a roundabout way because of it. 
I was speaking about all this with Matt Lockett earlier this week. Matt's the uh, founder of Bound for Life in the Justice House of Prayer. And he reminded me of a dream that somebody on the team had 15 years ago when Kelsey and I were living in D.C. We were there when this happened. I, I had to call him about the details because it's kind of gotten away on me. In the dream, a young man or a young woman, I'm sorry, was moving through a large building filled with courtrooms. And as she went from one courtroom to the next, she came to one that was marked the Appomattox Room. In it, preparations were being made to hear the Roe v. Wade case in the Appomattox courtroom. Most of us don't remember Appomattox. In April of 1865, General Lee was retreating across Virginia with the Confederate Army, and he made it as far as the Appomattox courthouse, where he was caught by the Union Army and there signed papers of unconditional surrender to General Grant on April 9th. That event marked the end of the Civil War. It also represented the largest death toll of any war in American history. Modern estimates say that 750,000 people lost their life during those four years. Now, this dream came to us in the midst of an intensified fasting and prayer season for a specific case that was put before the U.S. Supreme Court to rehear Roe v. Wade. They refused to hear it at that time. And for years, that dream about the courthouse has provided us with language to pray, and we've prayed, mercy, God, we don't want to be driven back to another Appomattox. Appomattox is a bloody reminder for this nation. And the dream connected the injustice of our nation's tragic past with things happening right here today in front of us. And it was like the Lord was saying, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. Our problem is not just that it's happening, okay? There's no way to control what 360 million people do. Our problem is that we turn a blind eye to it and we bless it. This week in Colorado, voters defeated Proposition 115. That proposition suggested that there ought to be a law to limit abortions to the first 22 weeks. Not to ban abortions outright, but just to say that once a child reaches 22 weeks, we think that maybe there's another way. At 22 weeks, a baby can perceive light. They can hear and they can respond to voices and they can grasp things with their fingers. All the proposition said was at that point, that's a baby. Call it a fetus before that if you like, but at 22 weeks, this is not a clump of cells. Coloradans went to the ballot and said that the right to kill that child outright outweighed the child's God-given right to life. Now, don't twist what I'm about to say into, uh, into thinking that I've, I'm telling you who you should have voted for. In case you forgot, you voted last week, maybe more than once. I don't know. But voting is done, okay? So don't make this into something that it's not. And let's not pin this on Colorado. But nationally, a man who we have appeared to have awarded the election to has made a commitment to cement the availability of abortions into federal law by codifying Roe v. Wade. Codifying Roe v. Wade would take the question of abortion out of the Supreme Court's hands by passing legislation in Congress that would guarantee a woman in every state the right to unfettered access to abortion. This would protect the right to abort even in the event that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. We, with this buildup of the court right now, we have never been so close 
to overturning Roe v. Wade, and we have never faced such potential disastrous outcome for the unborn at the same time. I'm not pointing fingers at individual candidates. I'm saying as a nation, we are liable for how this goes. As a nation, we are not even middle of the road when it comes to aborting our children. We are radically pro-abortion in our country. Only seven countries allow abortions after 20 weeks. Canada, China, the Netherlands, North Korea, Singapore, Vietnam, and the U.S. of A. As a people, we have blood on our hands. And the blood avenger looks to us and asks us if we will respond before he has to. How do we respond to injustice when, with all of this wrong? How do we respond to this? Okay. We're going to talk more about this next week, but I, I just want to tell this story but before we wind it up here. There is a danger in trying to right a wrong that we sin equally as atrociously in the other direction. Okay. When faced with great injustice, there is a danger that we act out in sin, and I want to guard against that. And there's a link to this actually happening on a local level. 1856 was a time of great unrest in this nation. Things were so tense that in the Senate chamber in Washington, D.C., a pro-slavery senator beat an abolitionist senator within an inch of his life with the iron head of a cane while Senate was in session. Now, it wasn't on C-SPAN. Nobody saw it, but the Senate was full of people. I mean, the senators saw it. Not long after that, out in Lawrence, Kansas, pro-slavery activists ransacked the town. And one man was so torn up by the injustice of this, his heart broke for slaves. He was so moved at the injustice of our nation's position on slavery that he responded to injustice with injustice. The night of May 23rd and 24th, 1856, John Brown and his sons attacked a group of pro-life, or I'm sorry, pro-slavery settlers north of Pottawatomie. They killed five men at three different cabins. This is not distance history geographically. Most of you from where you're sitting could reach the spot where it's happened in 45 minutes. It's near modern day Lane, Kansas. This happened near us. Three years later, Brown and 22 followers attacked Harper's Ferry in Virginia to try and liberate weapons from a US military arms depot that they were gonna use to arm escaped slaves and try and support a revolution. Interesting fact, he invited Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass to accompany him on that night. Harriet Tubman told him she was sick that day. Frederick Douglass flat out told him he was crazy. He was captured and he was hanged for this with two people in the audience who would be deeply marked by it. Viewing the hanging of John Brown were Walt Whitman, the poet, and John Wilkes Booth, who would later go on to kill Abraham Lincoln. Historians call this event the precursor to the Civil War or the tragic prelude. If you visit the Kansas State Capitol today, there's a giant painting of John Brown called the tragic prelude. If you ever get a chance to see it, see it. Looking at it online does not do it justice. It is huge. 
I remember the first time I saw it, I walked around a corner and having always connected John Brown and the Civil War to the radicals who tried to take the pro-life issue into their own hands in the 80s, people like Scott Roeder, who shot abortionist George Tiller in Wichita. I've always connected those two. And when I saw the painting for the first time, I gasped. Because you can have a just cause, but if you react in injustice, the Lord is not pleased. Right now, there are perceived injustices on both sides of the election. And there are radicals on both sides of the election who may feel that they have a just cause and are willing to act in unjust ways in order to bring justice. They do not know what they're saying. If you visit the Capitol and you look at that, that painting, which is called The Tragic Prelude, you will see John Brown standing wide-eyed with a Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other. At his feet lay the bodies of Union and Confederate soldiers. And behind him, across the prairie, races a tornado and a firestorm. If we respond to injustice in an unjust way, we will unleash a firestorm far greater than we possibly could imagine. John Brown took measures into his own hands, and he pushed the nation to the brink over the matter of slavery. The John Browns of the next civil war are probably wandering our streets. And you may have never been inspired to pray for our nation before. I am begging you, pray for America right now. Tensions are through the roof. Legitimate injustice is everywhere. And the entire nation carries the guilt of 50 years of Roe v. Wade and the very land cries out with the shedding of this innocent blood. Our only hope, friends, our only hope is that the blood avenger, God himself, has mercy on us and allows us time to make things right. Now, fortunately, with every crisis, God shows a plan. And I believe there are things that we can do that will make a difference. I believe we can cry out for mercy. I believe we can act in certain ways. We, we do not have to say that this is just the way it is. Next week, we're going to talk about so, those sorts of things. And I realize I leave you with some tension here today. But weigh that tension in your heart and ask the Lord to move on behalf of our nation that before the blood avenger visits, that we actually deal with this in our own courts. And maybe if we can never stop it entirely, at least we can stop blessing it with our seal of approval. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. I know this has been heavy. Uh, this coming week, we're going to talk about some answers, how we can move forward, how we can address the issue in a constructive way and help people who find themselves in a very difficult situation. Join me next week at the bridge or here on the podcast. Have a great day.